0: Good morning. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Uh, We are beginning a series through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and my goal this morning is to orient you to the big picture of what Paul writes in that letter. So let's pray to ask the Lord's help, and then we'll hear from the Word of the living God. Loving Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we do not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We know that the grass withers and the flowers, they fade and fall, but your word stands forever. We believe that this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians was given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training us in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. And so we ask now, speak, Lord, Because your servants are listening. Amen. I believe that what Paul does in this letter is remind the Christians in Ephesus about God's great eternal plan of redemption and how that connects to their lives. God has an eternal plan of redemption that's for our good and His glory, secured for us by His grace. And Paul explains that to the Ephesians. uh, And then he instructs the Ephesians, and now us, On how that plan connects with our daily lives. And so, structurally, you can divide Ephesians into two parts. In chapters one through three, we're told about God's eternal plan of redemption and the great love that He's had, that He puts on display for us in saving us and His grace. And then in chapters four through six, we're told how to live in light of that plan. Chapters one through three are full of rich theology. Chapters 4 through 6 give us counsel about how to live our lives in the here and now. Chapters 1 through 3 are God's eternal plan explained. Chapters 4 through 6 are God's eternal plan applied. And last week, we took an in-depth look at chapters 1 through 3, and I outlined those into six paragraphs, and I was trying to show you how they all fit together. I believe if I could summarize them in a very short outline form, They come out like this as if spoken by the Apostle Paul. God has an eternal plan for your good and his glory that I praise him for, and my prayer for you is that he would open the eyes of your heart to see it and be moved by it. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. It's a plan in which God's grace rescued us while we were hopeless and has secured our eternal joy, but it's a plan that it uh, it secures our eternal joy in such a way that there's no boasting, there's no bragging on our part for this plan of redemption because it's all by His grace. This plan has united Gentiles not only with God, but also with God's people in the church. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3… Paul says, he, he talks about the church, but then he says, my imprisonment is for God's glory in the church, so don't be discouraged by it. And then he finishes with a prayer in chapter 3, I pray that you would know with a knowledge that surpasses just knowing, uh, just knowing intellectually, but a, a knowledge that you would feel and experience deep down in your bones, how much Christ truly loves you. Um, that is an outline uh, of what happens in the first three chapters, and they lay the foundation for what now comes in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 is like a hinge between the first three chapters and the last four chapters, and the transition is between our position in Christ uh, in God's plan of salvation and how we ought to live our lives. So, the hinge is between knowing God's plan of redemption and then living in light of it. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says… Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. The key word there in that verse is therefore, and it introduces a topic sentence, but this topic sentence is not just for this paragraph that comes next. It's for what comes next in the rest of the entire book. And notice that early on in chapter 4, verse 1, do you see that word walk? Uh, The word walk, uh, is a word that Paul uses as a metaphor for how we live our day-to-day life. So, Paul's going to exhort us to live our day-to-day life in a way that is worthy of the salvation we've been called to. Uh, it, it's worthy uh, of our new position as sons and daughters of God adopted into His family through Christ. So, how can we live in a manner worthy of our new position? Well, chapters 4 through 6 explain that. As Paul unfolds them, he explains, here are the ways that you live in a manner worthy of your new status as sons and daughters of God through Christ. And it's obvious when you begin to study chapters 4 through 6 that understanding God's eternal plan of redemption lays a foundation for what follows so that we understand the rationale and the motivation for why we live the way we do. Uh, It's crucial for performing the good works God has prepared beforehand for us to understand His grace and love for us in salvation. But the marvelous master plan of God is not just something you conceptualize, right? It's not just something you marvel at. It's also meant to change you. Biblically speaking, faith isn't just something you do with your brain. It's a transaction of the heart that actually causes you to live differently. According to the Bible, you live out what you believe. And if you're not living out what you say you believe in, then according to the Bible, you may not actually believe in it because biblical faith lives out and demonstrates uh, what it believes by the way it lives. And so, Paul, as he then has now uh, explained God's plan and how he's praying for the Ephesians, he can't help but tell them about how it should change their life, how, how salvation redeems every part of our lives. And so, He says, in essence, uh, this is how you should now live in the church. This is how you should think. This is what you should do with your words. This is what you should do with your body. Here's how you should handle family relationships. He moves from God's eternal plan into the nitty-gritty details of our lives, and He gets down on the street level of Our bedrooms, and living rooms, and workplaces, and communities, and talks in very specific detail about how God's great plan of redemption should change where we live every day. If chapters 1 through 3 are God's eternal plan explained, chapters 4 through 6 are God's eternal plan applied, and Paul starts with our relationship to the church. How do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, through the way we participate in the church. Look at chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says in the Old Testament, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men." Uh, And He gave, let's skip down to verse 11, He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be like children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So as I was saying before, chapter 4, verse 1 is a topic sentence that introduces the rest of the book, and then chapters… sorry, verse 2 through 16 uh, are a big paragraph that talks about how we do life together in the church. And the key verse in the paragraph is verse 3, where we are exhorted to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So, the picture that's presented by that word preserve is this. The church already has unity. The Spirit created it. We didn't create it. The Spirit created it, but now it's our job to make sure we preserve it and don't mess it up, right? Uh, We didn't create the unity, but the Spirit did, and now it's our responsibility to preserve that unity. How? Well, verse 2 begins by giving us four attitudes that are a big help in preserving unity in the church. Pride has a tendency to produce what among people? It it tends to produce friction, conflict, and so humility, right, uh, verse 2, with all humility, humility is important. Uh, for keeping unity in the church, and not only that, uh, also being gentle with one another, because we understand how much we've already been forgiven in Christ. We understand how patient God has already been with us. So then, therefore, being gentle with other people, that's also a big help to preserving unity. And another key ingredient is patience. Being patient with one another—that's important. Also. Uh, Having a genuine love for one another that is willing to show some tolerance when relationships get difficult, that's also a key ingredient in maintaining unity in the church. And then in verses four through six, Paul gives a staccato list of everything we have in common. And you, you know what the list does when you think about it. What the list does is that it illustrates that what we have in common, uh, that the, the things we have in common, are greater and more than the things that divide us. Uh, So, for instance, we share a common life, one body. We share a common source of spiritual life, one Spirit. We, We share a common future, one hope. We share a common Master, one Lord. We share a common body of beliefs and values, one faith. We share a common confession, Uh, public confession of Christ, and uh, a common oath of allegiance as illustrated by our one baptism that we all participated in. We share the same heavenly Father. And so these realities that unite us, uh, unite us to every other Christian on the globe on the basis uh, of of what God has done for us, and they form the unity that we have. And then in verses 7 through 11 we're given practical insight into how to go about preserving unity. If you want to preserve unity in the church, you have to do church according to Christ's plan for the church. Now, what Paul explains is not an an exhaustive list of how we organize the church, right? There's other New Testament passages you have to go to. but in this paragraph, what does he emphasize? Well, he emphasizes that Christ has given each one of us gifts… That we need to use uh, for the good of everybody else in the body. But then also, Christ has given the church the good gift of gifted leaders who are supposed to equip the body to do the work of the ministry. Uh, That's verses 12 through 13. And the goal of all of it is being like Christ. We want to become Christ like. Uh, in our behavior, in our morality, in our words, in our actions. And to do that, we have to grow up spiritually. We can't continue to be like spiritual children who are led astray by every harmful theological fad that comes around. Uh, And so, how do we grow up from that? Well, verse 15, we learn to speak truth to love in one another, and we all do our part in using our spiritual gift in the life of the church. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling by walking in unity and by doing our part in the church. We also walk in a manner worthy of our calling on an individual level when we walk in sanctification. Look at verses 17 through 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you've heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the desires of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth." This is one of the classic New Testament passages on sanctification. What we mean by sanctification? Yeah, uh, it's the word for holy, okay? The word we translate as saints, holiness. Uh, we could call it holification, but that sounds kind of weird in English. And and we had a whole tradition going hundreds of years back of Latin coming into English, sanctus, so we made it sanctification. But it's just growing in holiness and obedience to the truth and pursuing that in, on an individual level. That's what Paul's describing here. And in verses 17 through 19, he talks about how we used to live before we came to Christ, before, verse 19, we learned Christ. And then in verses 22 through 24, Paul outlines a three-step game plan for growing in sanctification. Step one, you have to lay aside the old self that was being corrupted by desires that were deceitful. Before we came to Christ, we had desires and cravings and passions that that, uh, for, for certain kinds of pleasures that promised us that if we indulged in them, we would have joy and that which is life indeed and life that's really worth living. But in the end, the, all those desires lead to death. They were lying to us. They were deceiving us. You have to put aside those deceitful desires, that old way of living before we came to Christ. Step two, you have to renew the spirit of your mind with the Word of God, right, so that you understand the reality uh, and what to put off and put on. And then step three, we put on the new self of the new creation that we are in Christ. Now, the language Paul uses here is language that Greek speakers used for taking off uh, old clothes and putting on new clothes. So, imagine for the sake… just for the sake of illustration, uh, many of you have been over to our house you know that we, we live on a little bit of property in Spotsylvania. So imagine that it's a hot summer day, and I'm mowing the lawn, and uh, as I mow the lawn with my uh, John Deere riding lawn mower, that you know I got it, and it just was so cool to me that I bought a riding lawn mower when I because I I was from LA, I was from Los Angeles. And uh, I got it, and I remember just smiling ridiculously the first time I mowed my lawn because I had a tractor, and I thought, oh, well, of course, it's novel. It'll go away. Years later, I still smile like a fool when I'm on the tractor. I just like it. I'm like a little boy. So imagine I'm on the tractor, and I'm I'm getting done mowing the lawn, and and what do do my clothes and my body smell like? I smell like sweat, gasoline gasoline fumes, and uh, grass clippings, okay? That's what I smell like. Now imagine we have people coming over to the house. Well, is it going to be enough if I want to take care of that and get that scent off of me, is it going to be enough to take new clothes and just put them on over the clothes I'm wearing? No, I have to take the old clothes off, renew my body with a shower, and then put on new clothes. And my point is this, it, you, we'll, and we'll see it when we get there. You can't skip any of the steps. It's only a three-step game plan. It's not like… Paul isn't burying you in 11 steps here. It's three steps, and when you, can, when you look at it, you can't skip any of the steps uh, and have it work out. Uh, all three are important for growth in righteousness. Our minds have to be renewed by God in such a way that we put off the old habits we used to live in and begin putting on and building habits of faithfulness and obedience to God's commands. So, we walk in a manner worthy of our calling when we walk in unity in the church and on a personal level when we pursue sanctification. Third, we walk in a manner worthy of our calling when we love others, particularly with our words. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what's good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So, the key verse in this paragraph is chapter 5, verse 2, Uh, where we walk in love just as Christ has already loved us. How do we do that? Well, a key component is what we do with our words, how we talk to other people. And Paul introduces for us four rules of communication in Ephesians 4 that help us speak in loving ways. First, we're to be honest, verse 25. We're to put aside falsehood and speak the facts lovingly. Uh, second, we're to keep current on our relationships, dealing with problems, you know, hurt feelings, sin, uh, uh, controversies. Uh, we're, we're to keep current in our relationships, dealing with problems today, not putting them off till tomorrow, where they'll fester and get infested and get worse over time. Verses 26 and 27. Third, we attack the problem, not the person right? We, we, we use our energy to attack the… Pro- we avoid attacking, attacking the other person with unwholesome words and choose solution-oriented words that not only solve the problem in a task-oriented way, but also give grace to the other person to help build them up, verses 29 and 30. And then fourth, we learn to act instead of just reacting. We don't just keep reacting in bitterness and wrath and anger, the, the, the kind of bitterness, wrath, and anger that characterized us before we were reconciled to God. Instead, we choose to stop and pause and thoughtfully, purposefully speak in ways that are kind and sympathetic and forgiving because of how much we've already been forgiven. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling when we grow to love others with our words." We also walk in a manner worthy of our calling when we walk in purity. Look at chapter 5 verse 3, but immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which is not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater as an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it's disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In verses 3 and 4, Paul gives sec, uh, he, he lists six kinds of sexual sin. By using the words immorality and impurity, Paul is forbidding any kind of sexual act except the honorable enjoyment of sex in marriage. And then Paul forbids sexually sinful thoughts about someone other than your spouse with the word greed in verse 2… excuse me, in verse 3, and also then uh, using the word covetousness a little bit later on. That's what that's getting at, the, the wrong thought life. And then he deals with uh, sins of speech. Filthiness refers to obscene obscene talk. Silly talk is off-color jo- jokes or just sort of uh, coarse and crass sexual kinds of humor. Uh, Course jesting refers to the more sophisticated forms of innuendo and using words with double meaning. Uh, and these six forms of sexual sin are forbidden. Then with the rest of the paragraph, Paul gives us motivation. He gives us some motives uh, for dealing with this sin seriously. He helps us understand why this is so important. Uh, first of all, verses 5 and 6, it's because if your life is characterized by continual, habitual, unrepentant sexual sin, then you won't inherit the kingdom of God. The second motive is found in verses 7 through 10, and that is that having a life dominated by these sins is contrary to our new nature in Christ. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. The most miserable people in the world are not atheists who are angry at God and ignoring Him. The most miserable people in the world are not hedonists who are pursuing pleasures that in the short run are enjoyable, but in the long run can't satisfy the soul. I'm not saying that those people can't be miserable, but they're not the most miserable people in the world. The most miserable person in the world is the truly born-again Christian, but who's living in sexual sin. And here's the reason why. They can't enjoy the sin the way they used to before coming to Christ, and then on the other side of that sin, which is pleasurable in the moment there's a whole bunch of guilt and shame that they feel after doing it. And what it does is it sets up an inner conflict. You become a conflicted person, totally distracted by this thing going on in your life, and it's a miserable way to live. It's contrary to our new nature, and it sets us up for a devastating kind of inner turmoil and conflict. We become severely uh, just over-the-top kind of conflicted people, and we don't want to live life that way. And then the third motive is found in verses 11 through 14. Sexual sin undermines our mission and our witness. On the other hand, if we could live in purity, it helps strengthen our mission, and it helps validate the witness that we bring into the world. Which brings us to the fifth way that we walk worthy. We walk in biblical wisdom. Look at verses 15 through 21. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God, always giving thanks for all all things, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we each have one life to invest for God's kingdom, and we want to be wise with how we invest the limited amount of time and energy and resources we have. We want to make the most of the opportunities we have, but to do that, it necessitates us knowing God's will so that we make wise decisions. It necessitates knowing God's will as He's revealed it in Scripture, but the problem with that is that we can't do that on our own. We desperately need the Spirit's help. We need to be, verse 18, filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, Christians are already full of the Spirit in the sense that we were given the Spirit when we came to Christ in salvation, But that's clearly not what Paul means here. That's not the sense in which he's speaking of being filled by the Spirit. And he doesn't go on to define exactly what he means, which means if you want a more specific concrete answer to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. You have to go to other passages in the Bible to figure out what other passages teach about being filled with the Spirit. And in this case, the key cross-reference to go through is Colossians 3, because in Colossians 3, we find an identical list of what being filled with the Spirit produces in the life of a Christian, except it's not called being filled with the Spirit in that context. It's called letting the words of Christ dwell in you richly. So, the two concepts, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and being filled with the Spirit, they both produce the same results, which means they're equivalent. To be under the influence of the Holy Spirit means that we let the words of Christ dwell in us richly in such a way that we actually do them, right? We actually live them. Or maybe we could say it this way if we portrayed it as a process… Through confession and repentance and faith and Bible study, we fill ourselves with the words of Christ, and then what we've stored up in our hearts through that faithful study, the Holy Spirit then uses the words of Christ we've learned to direct us and influence us as we're making decisions uh, and, and taking action. Uh, And when that happens, when we're filled by the Spirit the way Paul is speaking of here, the results come in verse 19, verses 19 through 21. One of them is that you begin to have a love for sharing God-centered music with other Christians. You begin to enjoy the congregational singing we do on Sunday because we're singing true things about the Lord. Um, you'll be thankful. Uh, you won't be characterized by complaining and being morose and negative all the time, but you'll actually grow in thankfulness Uh, because your eyes have been opened to how much love you've received from God. You'll also be willing to submit yourself to God-given human authorities, which is what transitions us into the next section. The idea of authority at the end of verse 21 leads us uh, into a new way of walking in a manner worthy of our calling, and that is we submit to God's design for the household by submitting to God-given authority, and also by exercising any God-given authority. It's our responsibility to exercise in a loving way. Look at verses 22 through 33, "'Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. But nourish is and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of His body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. If you follow Jesus and you get married, God has a role for you to play in your marriage that He has designed and assigned to you for your good. If you're a wife, your role is to submit to your husband, and we'll talk more when we get there later in the study about what that does and doesn't mean, so we'll make sure we define that to make sure there's clarity there. Um, And also, God's command for you is to respect your husband. Your husband is not always going to make wise decisions. There are going to be moments where He says and does foolish things, things that would cause most people not to respect Him or His judgment, and you still need to try and speak to Him in respectful ways. If you're a husband, your job is to lovingly lead, lovingly provide for, and lovingly protect your wife. And four times in this paragraph, the command to Love your wife with an agape love is given. In other words, agape love is, in Greek, it's the self-sacrificial love of the will, where you love the other person with their best interest at heart, even if on a human level you look at the way they're behaving and they don't always deserve it. It's the self-sacrificing love of the will. So, you are to lovingly lead because you are the head, verse 23. Now, this is important. When uh, God's Word calls you the head of that household, uh, it means that you are in a God-designed position of de facto leadership in the family, even if she has a stronger personality, right? Even if uh, you married a contentious woman, you are the de facto head of your home, which means if you don't show some initiative and exercise some leadership, you don't cease to be the leader, you're still the leader. You're just a bad leader. That's all that's happening, right? So you have to lovingly practice leadership. Uh, it's not your wife's job to figure out how the family is going to finance having a roof over your head and clothes on your back. That's your job. Now, she can contribute wise counsel. She could help you get training. Uh, she can help with a job search, with the details of that. She can even go out and work and bring in money if she wants. That's wonderful, but it's not her responsibility to have the plan. That's your responsibility, to lovingly provide for. And it's also your job to lovingly protect your wife, and not just physically, but also spiritually, right? Financially, emotionally. Uh, and and if, this, if, if you hear this… And you read the passage, and it it should clarify things, but if it doesn't clear up all the questions you have, one of the things that can be really helpful in this passage, husbands, is that we take our cues from the way Christ loved the church, right? So, we just look at how Christ interacts with the church, and then that gives us a model for how we can interact with our wives. And I just want to note again, agape love is the key ingredient. In fact, I would say it this way, if you… I believe if you'll love your wife with a self-sacrificial love, loving her means you're going to care about how she's doing physically and spiritually. Uh, It means you're going to want to take some initiative to care for her and have a plan. And so, if you'll just love her, I think some of the leadership questions and provision questions and protection questions very naturally take care of themselves on their own because love takes initiative to help the other person. Um, Loving has a way of working out a lot of the difficult questions in marriage. And then consider the parent-child relationship, chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, God calls you to obey your parents. And fathers, the mothers get instruction and exhortation in other parts of Scripture, but Paul singles out you and I here uh, in chapter 6. One of the pitfalls that's just typical for dads to fall into is exasperating our children, right? Provoking our children to anger. Don't go down that path. Listen to your wife's input about what's going on in that child's life. Uh, uh, Take her parenting advice into consideration, and nurture your children in the training and counsel the Lord would have you give them. It's your job to make sure the children graduate your home with a biblical worldview. Now, in many ancient households… Uh, In many ancient… excuse me, let me back up. In many ancient Greco-Roman households, they they had hired servants, what we would call indentured servants, and slaves. And this is the Word of the Lord to them. Uh, Verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same thing to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with Him." Now, this particular paragraph, this particular instruction, for us as contemporary American Christians, it is hard for our ears to hear. Why? Because most of us are angry by the end of the paragraph that Paul doesn't just condemn slavery outright and forbid it for all who follow Christ. That's, let's just admit it. That's what we want Paul to do, and he doesn't do it. So, why is this a problem? Well, one of the reasons this is a big problem for us is because of the way slavery was practiced and defended in the American South. It was a slavery based on race where slaves were not treated as people with equal protection under the law, where slave masters who commit crimes were not prosecuted or held accountable, and where families were even uh, split up and sold and divided. Um, it was that kind of slavery. Uh, and what happens is we come along, we read this with thinking of slavery in that context, and when Paul doesn't outri- uh, uh, outright just condemn slavery, it troubles us, right? It troubles us greatly. And part of the problem here, too, is that the defense for slavery given by some churches in the South was this Well, you can't find anywhere in Scripture where God forbids slavery. Now, is that true? Yeah, it's true. You you can't go and find a verse where God forbids slavery or where the apostles forbid those who follow Jesus from owning slaves. You can't find that anywhere in Scripture. But the problem with that is that's a poor argument because it's not taking everything that's in Scripture into account. When God gave the law to the nation of Israel, He did allow for slavery to be practiced in Israel, but it was a regulated slavery. Slaves were treated as people with equal protection under the law. Slave owners who committed assault, rape, or murder were to be prosecuted and punished in the same way as if they had committed that crime against a free person. Uh, Families, uh, slave families, were not to be split up but kept together. And there were generous rules for manumission so that slaves could uh, easily buy their way out of slavery. So, the, in the American South, slavery was practiced in a sub-biblical manner, but the defense was given, well, but the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't forbid slavery as an institution. But when you look through the Bible, uh, the Bible implicitly condemns the way that we Americans practice slavery in the South. Uh, the, the Bible condemns it based on the principles taught in the Mosaic Law. In fact, It's the Christian influence on Rome that eventually led Rome to do away with slavery. I think this is important when we consider Christianity, right? Because the concern is, well, the Bible doesn't outlaw slavery, so it must be a wicked book, right? But when you look back through the history of planet Earth, no pagan culture has ever done away with slavery on its own. It had to be the Christian influence that got the Roman Empire there. Um, And so, we're going to deal with that when we get there. And I'm not going to punt to talking about uh, boss-employee relationships. I'll I'll give an application for sure, but I'm not going to just punt to that because we need to talk about the context in which Paul taught this. The larger point of the paragraph… I don't want to get totally derailed on the slavery question. The larger point of the paragraph is this, that within the households, people who are filled with the Spirit and filled with the Word of Christ will submit to human authority in the household, and those who exercise authority in the household, who are filled with the Spirit and full of the Word of Christ, will exercise their authority authority in a loving way and not abuse that authority. And then Paul ends his instruction on Christian living by saying the following about spiritual warfare. Chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, Ephesians ends with a call uh, to a battle, to spiritual warfare. Now, it could appear to the casual reader when you get to this section, like Paul is changing the subject. He's changing the subject to talk about spiritual warfare. I don't think that's what he's doing. He's doing this to sum up and conclude everything he said about walking in unity in the church, loving other people with our words, walking in purity, uh, implementing God's design for the household, and what he's saying is this, the life between when we were saved and when we go home to be with Christ is a life of spiritual warfare. It's a war for your mind. It's a war for your heart's desires. It's a war for your passions. It's a war for your loyalty and allegiance. You have to arm yourself for the battle. Satan, the world in rebellion to God, and all the baggage that you brought into your relationship with Christ, it will wage war against what you know to be true, what you know you should love, and how you know you should be acting and in that war it's a war of temptation and in that war the gospel is your armor and the word of god is your sword and then finally chapter 6 verse 21 we come to what i believe is paul's occasion for writing this letter now i've made much in the introduction about what is the meaning of the letter what is the content of the letter what can we learn from the way he writes about god's plan and praise for the ephesians What does it mean for us? I've made a lot about about the meaning. But what was the occasion? Why did Paul sit down and write it? We know why he wrote 1 Corinthians. It's because the Corinthian church sent him a letter, and they asked him some good questions, but Paul read the letter and realized the church was in chaos and a mess, and so he had to write a much longer letter than Ephesians to them to clear up the mess. Uh, In Galatians, he wrote to the Galatians because they were defecting to a false gospel, but they didn't recognize it as such. They didn't realize it was a false gospel. And He's trying to get them to understand, no, 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 this is a completely other, this is a completely other religion than Christianity that you're willing to go after. Uh, we know why He wrote uh, Romans, right? He had wanted to visit the Roman Christians, and He wasn't able to, so He wrote them a longer letter. Um, uh, Philippians, right? Philippians is contested, I mean, it's a minor point amongst us Christians, but I take the view and it's controversial. But I take the view, I think he wrote Philippians to help resolve the conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, and and, and he gives a primer on, you know, conflict resolution. But since he was going to write it, then he wants to remind the Philippians of important spiritual truths. And so, that's why he wrote that letter. But why Ephesians? Why why would Paul sit down and write this letter? Well, chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 21. But… that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love." So, we've seen this in earlier chapters, and I mentioned it, Paul is in prison in Rome and he knows the Ephesians are praying for him. He knows they're very concerned about him. He senses that his imprisonment discourages them, and he's trying to tell them, no, 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 this is, I know this looks like a setback, but this is actually an opportunity for the gospel. And so, he sends this letter with Tychicus so that Tychicus, his brother and fellow worker, can answer all the questions they're going to have about Paul and his circumstances when they receive the letter. I believe that's the occasion. For why Paul sat down and wrote this letter, but in God's providence and design, this letter now is a letter that can encourage and comfort and instruct us. And the application for us today, there's one main application, having read all three of the final chapters, is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to walk in a manner worthy of this gospel to which we've been called by preserving unity in the church. By walking in personal sanctification, by growing in loving others with our words, by pursuing sexual purity, by walking in biblical wisdom, and by living out God's plan for the household. Now, many of those things, if you've been in Christ, much of what I read and much of what I've preached today, in terms of the main point of how you should live, uh, it, it, it's not new to you. It's review. It seems pretty obvious. And it's pretty uh, clear cut and straightforward, at least cognitively. But there's a problem with it. There's a problem with all of this uh, living in a way that <clears throat> uh, is worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And the problem is this it's harder than it looks, right? I think if you're reading through this, it's like, oh, this is good, this is applicational. But let's be honest, it's harder than it looks to consistently live out all these commands. Um, It is a a spiritual war that we live in the middle of, uh, that we're tempted by, and so we have to arm ourselves if we're going to win the spiritual victory. And so, with that in mind, let me close by asking us for God's help. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this magnificent letter the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write, and for the way it reminds us of our Heavenly Father's great eternal plan. Please open the eyes of our hearts to understand it. Please give us the grace to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and please use it uh, to change us and transform us so that we can be useful for Your purposes for us in our generation, we pray. In Your redeeming name, Amen.